sorry I don't love you A phrase I've grown accustomed to Cause with you something isn't wrong Something isn't wrong Something isn't right Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. We have a brand new guest this week. Lee Munson is on to talk about both Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Lee, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, How about yourself? Pretty good. It's a little toasty, so we'll see how much water I end up drinking during this episode and hope I don't run out. (laughs) Yeah, if, if it sounds like I am drowning, it's because I'm similarly trying to douse my, uh, parched throat today, so... Uh, bear with me on that, please. <laughs> awesome. And before we dive in, I just want to let you guys know that we have a new sponsor for this episode. Today's show is brought to you by Gamefly.com. You can sign up for a premium free 30-day trial, and that will allow you to take out one game. And that will be at GameflyOffer.com forward slash GeekdomPod. I'll have that link in the show notes so you guys don't have to remember it. I try to make sure I put it everywhere so it's easier for you guys to find. And there's no offer code. You just get that free trial right away through that link. But Lee, I know we want to dive into Guardians of the Galaxy here. Why don't we go ahead and just take this one movie at a time and then we can give some overall thoughts on what they've done with both at the end. But when the first movie came out, did you go see it in theaters? I get the feeling you probably did. <laughs> I did. Um, uh, I saw it once uh, on my own opening night because I was really excited for it. And then uh, I want to say it was about a week later, uh, I went and uh, I took my partner for our anniversary because I'm that big of a dork. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those movies where I was a little bit worried that it wouldn't hold up on a second viewing. But now, like, in the three years since it's been out, I've seen it probably about five or six times, and it's just as enjoyable to me every time I revisit it. Yeah, and I am horrendous at watching movies, as you have probably learned here from (laughs) working together on Substream as briefly as it's been so far, but I did rewatch this one before we recorded this, not necessarily today, but like last week or whatever it was, and... I was a little surprised with how much of it I had forgotten about, too, because normally I am not a rewatcher or rereader of things. I'm of the opinion that there are so many other things to watch that I don't really want to keep watching the same things over and over again, and yet I still don't get around to some of the most obvious things that I should be watching. But that's a whole other podcast. I empathize entirely. Yeah, that I could make a whole other podcast about that itself. <laughs> but I really did enjoy rewatching this too. And I am pretty sure I didn't see it in theaters because I don't know if I was, I don't know what I was doing three years ago. That's too long ago to remember for <laughs> me. But the rewatch was really nice because I was like, okay, so where they went with the next movie made a little more sense. And how they brought these characters together made a lot more of a difference to me, I think, on the rewatch too, because it was nice that they didn't just put everyone on the team together right away. I know we get a good chunk of them together right away, but they're not exactly friendly towards each other. So it was one of those things where they had to let it grow organically, but they couldn't let it take the whole movie either. So I think they did a nice job of 
sort of doing that setup for the team within, you know, like the first 30, 45 minutes or so. Oh, sure. I mean, it's comparable to the Avengers in that way. Like, anytime that you have a an ensemble piece where the the whole drive of the plot is uh, people getting things done, and the question of the character motivations is whether or not they're able to uh, cooperate or not. Like, that's the that's the entire ethos of the film is basically trying to see how these five very disparate and kind of jerky characters will uh, manage to get along and whether or not they will be able to cooperate. Like, that's what makes this story very interesting. But, uh, yeah, it it's, it's a movie that I tend to sort of characterize as the Ghostbusters of this generation. Okay. Largely because, again, it's it's an ensemble piece about characters who are kind of jerks getting together to do a job. And the the comic timing is very similar, the the very offbeat sort of high concept nature of the of the plot is very similar. And I think it uh, spoke to people in a, in a very similar way as being a pop culture phenomenon uh, with having these characters be so irreverent and be so... They're such unrestrained ids, is I think what draws people to them. They they're they're very much wants and needs, but uh, and while they're very in, ill considerate of one another, they also are very relatable and very human, for lack of a better term, considering we're talking about mostly aliens. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a very relatable movie, I, I think, is what it comes right down to. Yeah, I definitely agree with them being extremely relatable even though they aren't necessarily all human or fully human and i think part of that is because they aren't heroes to start the movie it's debatable whether or not they're even really heroes in the sense that the avengers are heroes by the end of the movie too and i think because they have that sort of they want to get in trouble feeling and they want to do good feeling it definitely makes them more relatable to, I would say, probably the majority of the audience that's watching this movie. Whereas if you have someone like Captain America, it's like, okay, no one is Captain America. <laughs> you know, it's a little harder to relate to a character like that. Mm -hmm. What makes a Captain America movie interesting is watching how people react to his pure goodness. Right. What makes what makes a, a Guardians of the Galaxy movie interesting is the pull back and forth between what you know is right and what you're willing to do. And I think a lot of people deal with that struggle on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, particularly because y you look at what's happening even politically now and you wonder to what extent can you make a difference, but then there's also that selfish drive to insulate yourself and make sure that you're looking out for number one, you know? And that's a very relatable con that pretty much every single one of these characters embodies uh, and yet still remain as distinct entities in and of themselves. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about this being sort of an origin story for the team itself, not necessarily every single character on the team, but we see origin movies done over and over and over again. So was this one sort of a pleasant surprise for you with how they handled that sort of origin? Because obviously we do get a little more of Peter's origin 
because he's sort of the leader of the team and everything and he's where the movie starts so what are your thoughts on the fact that this is an origin story but might not necessarily entirely feel like one well what's nice about it is that in in the case of peter he's our point of view character right he's the person that the audience relates to so that as all the weird stuff is happening on screen we feel more grounded so uh, the fact that he's the only character that has an origin story per se is is what makes the film work so that it doesn't feel overcluttered. We get hints as to Gamora's background, as to Drax's background. Like We get a lot of expositional dialogue that explains who these people are, but we don't necessarily get bogged down in scene after scene of explaining the lore behind each of these characters. And I think that's what makes this movie work. We're, we're, not, we're not so concerned with creating an encyclopedia for these five characters. We get to know who they are, and we let their actions speak for, for them rather than some Wikipedia entry uh, talking about how a Rocket looks like a raccoon. <laughs> right, and that's something that is clearly obvious as soon as you start <laughs> watching the movie. So it's like, is that really a necessary fact that needs to be said? And I want to talk, too, about the villains in this, because a lot of superhero movies will also, I wouldn't say necessarily suffer at the hand of the villains that they pick, but there are always better options, it seems, for some characters. Mm -hmm. And with this, they sort of hit you right in the beginning with Thanos being kind of the mastermind behind everything and Ronan's just really like one of his puppeteers basically so did you think that was a bold choice for them to pick a villain as big literally and figuratively as Thanos well the thing is Thanos is he's more prominent in this film than he has been in any of the other Marvel movies but only insofar as that he's name dropped a lot right and I think that if this film has a big weakness, like most of the Marvel movies, when you get right down to it, it's it's who the villain it's how the villain is characterized as opposed to the heroes. And uh on the one hand, you generally want your uh your heroes to be the ones that you focus on more as far as development, uh, because they're what drive the plot. But you kinda end up wishing that someone like Ronan the Accuser was a bit more interesting than just a space racist who wants to destroy a planet. Right. And thankfully, uh, Nebula gets a bit more development in the second film, but uh, in in the first film, she kind of just felt like the obligatory girl that Gamora got to fight, unfortunately. But uh, we can we can talk about how that's rectified in part two, uh, because I think Nebula became a much more interesting character. But that being said, I think that of Marvel villains... I think Ronan is on the better side, at least as far as, like, the Phase 2 movies go. Because Phase 2 Marvel films suffered pretty bad from not having a wealth of strong villains to to drive the, the growth of the protagonists. Yeah, and I feel like villains are a lot better, too, when there's actual consequences that come along with them. You mentioned he wanted to destroy an entire planet basically and that's a lot better than just you know having these villains that 
antagonize the heroes and there's not really any consequences to it in the in the end sure you know there may be some property damage or something like that but sometimes it feels like the villains just don't have any real consequence to go along with them and it's a little disappointing when something like that happens especially with comic book movies because there are so many villains to choose from and sometimes it feels like there are only a handful that they just kind of want to keep revisiting either in the different mediums or the reboots or what have you. Mm -hmm. Well, the nice thing about Guardians of the Galaxy is that it was in and of itself a pretty obscure property before the movie came out. Right. So uh, pretty much all of Marvel's cosmic stuff has pretty much existed as like C and D tier Marvel for pretty much the entirety of its existence. Uh, very niche as far as superhero comics go. So essentially, they had a blank check to make whatever weird stuff they wanted to do. And the the fact that they brought in James Gunn to make this weird little experimental movie within their grander universe, and it worked, particularly because James Gunn is such a weird uh, auteur, and he and he runs with that weirdness and marvel lets him run with that weirdness it it it's a it's a material that works well for him and there's there's a plethora of villains that they can choose from within the scope of broader uh cosmic marvel and again you see more of that in volume 2 once we've got our primary uh heroes established in part 1 right the villain becomes much more important in part 2 because we have a firm understanding of who our heroes are and what their dynamic is. Exactly. And for me, I think the nice thing about this was that even though I wasn't super familiar with Guardians of the Galaxy, I'm pretty sure, you know, I started getting into it more and diving deeper after this movie. And thanks to Marvel Unlimited, that's pretty easy to do because you can just binge read a ton of comics. And I agree with you that there are a ton of villains they can pull from, but I think the fact that they introduced Thanos kind of allowed them to, I guess, make this plan to have the Infinity War movies. And you couldn't have had those Infinity War movies probably without introducing him in something like Guardians of the Galaxy first, because if you don't introduce him in your your big space title, basically... How are you going to pull that off otherwise? You know, we don't really see the Avengers going to space all that often. And, you know, then we'll have Captain Marvel coming up soon, who also goes to space. So it'll be interesting to see how they handle this and if they can sort of continue this same feeling for the third movie that they plan on doing. Because I think with definitely the first movie and the second movie, they really captured just the pure essence of these characters and in volume one you know they bicker like they're a family but they still kind of haven't warmed up to each other just yet mm-hmm. yeah they they don't i don't i'm gonna push back a little bit on that because i don't think that they'd so much bicker like a family in the first film i think they bicker like a family in the second film okay because that the dynamic has been established in the first film I mean, quite frankly, they're just a bunch of assholes and they (laughs) fight because they're a bunch of selfish assholes and their arc throughout that film is learning to have community with one another. So, but, but by the time the second film rolls around, 
they're not really any less of assholes. They're just assholes who happen to like each other. You know, that that's true. So <laughs> I think either way, you know, the bickering is there and mm -hmm. it has different meanings based on the two different films. So I, I can definitely take that back and agree with you, putting it that way. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about just how they made this film, because when you have space films, a lot of it is going to end up being CGI, especially when you have, you know, the big space battle and everything in this. And I thought it looked really great, considering how much of this film probably has to be CGI just because of the nature of its setting and everything. So what did you think about the effects and everything in this film? I thought the effects were fantastic. We're, we're getting to a point where when a, a film this fantastical has a sufficient budget and enough talented people behind it, it, it becomes relatively seamless. And what's what's nice about Guardians of the Galaxy is that it uses a lot of bright colors that make its images pop. So even when even when it dips into the uncanny valley, the 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 bright colors and the surreality of those colors make it something that feels weird and alien and that and that makes the fakeness of some of the graphics more forgivable. So you're you're dealing with a lot of bright-skinned aliens. The the ships are all very colorfully ornamented. It's it's just a movie that pops visually, uh, and I think that that definitely helps when you're creating something that the primary backdrop is the blackness of space. Right, and even though a lot of this stuff is CGI, the makeup department definitely has their hands full because I know with the main characters, at least, they definitely, you know, like, put the blue and the green on them and everything like mm -hmm. that. They might not you know, cover their entire bodies, but it's still a process that takes hours and to have that sort of dedication, not only for the makeup department, for, but for the actors and actresses playing these characters, I think it shows just how dedicated everyone was to making this film and making sure it looked as good as it could with the budget they had. Mm -hmm. uh, if I remember correctly, it, I believe it won the Oscar for Best Hair and Makeup in 2014. I, I could be wrong. It might have only been nominated, but I'm fairly certain it won. So it's a it, it is a feat as far as uh, makeup and costume or makeup and hairstyling is concerned, because particularly Gamora and Yondu are feats of makeup design just because like when you have that much makeup on someone's body, it is a very uncomfortable issue because your skin isn't able to breathe. So you, you have to come up with creative ways in order to make that work and my understanding is that they put a lot of effort into making sure that the actors were comfortable in their makeup and I think it shows because their performances don't suffer from the encumbrance. Yeah and it looks like they were nominated for makeup and hairstyling and visual effects at the Academy Awards in 2015 mm -hmm. but they didn't win either category but still the fact that mm. these okay. comic book movies are still getting some sort of Academy Award recognition, at least, is a testament to just how far the genre has come. Because if you look back at, like, you know, the first Incredible Hulk movie, you might not say the same thing that you say about mm -hmm. the superhero movies now. And it's just really nice to see that they are 
rewarding these people for doing such an excellent job because superhero movies are sort of where you're going to probably see some of the weirdest makeup and hairstyling (laughs) that these people Mm -hmm. have probably ever had to do too so you know everyone is sort of on top of their game for these movies even though for a lot of the audience they're not necessarily movies with serious tones but let me tell you people take their comic books very seriously so (laughs) there are definitely going to be people out there that take these movies seriously even though they're meant to be more fun than anything else yep i i would agree with that as someone who follows the marvel cinematic universe very closely i can i can attest to that uh people people love their frivolous excitements and you know, <laughs> and, and you know what there's nothing wrong with that yeah definitely well is there anything else that you want to touch on for the first movie here we are grouped <laughs> I think that just about everything I want to talk about with the first movie, I I think it'll bleed into the second. So I think we can I think we can move on. Awesome. Well, before we start on the second movie, I want to let you all know that for the listeners of Welcome to Geekdom, GameFly is offering a premium 30-day free trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. They offer a one-disc subscription at $15.95 a month and a two-disc one at $22.95 a month. So this is basically a fraction of the price you would normally pay to own these video games. And when you rent the game, it comes with a pre-addressed envelope so you can easily return it. You don't have to go searching for the return address or anything like that. And they have games available for all of the current consoles and they have some of the older ones like PlayStation 2, Xbox, and GameCube. And, you know, a while back, I found out that my PlayStation 2 was fried and I was quite sad about it. But, you know, things happen and you guys should definitely rent these games whether or not you have new consoles old consoles anything and to get your free trial you can go to gameflyoffer.com forward slash geekdom pod and again i will have that in the show notes the show links so you guys don't have to search for it or remember it or anything like that but thank you to gamefly for sponsoring this episode and now guardians of the galaxy volume two Lee, this movie is obviously much more recent, so it's a little Mm -hmm. easier to remember what happened just based on one viewing for me, at least. Have you seen this once? Have you gone back to see it since? I only got to the theater to see it once, and unfortunately, that was a little over a month ago when I went to the press screening. So uh, I feel like my memory might be a little fuzzier on this, but I definitely have thoughts about some very memorable moments. So we can explore what we can explore. Yeah, and to sort of put this together with the first movie in the first movie we find out that peter doesn't know who his father is and this second film is pretty much all about his father (laughs) i mean not entirely but the general plot is largely about him finding out who his father is and what exactly his father plans on doing which is not very nice at all but what are your thoughts on ego as a character so ego is very interesting because when you get right down to it, the the entire film becomes about bad parenting. It, it becomes about being an abusive father, and that's who Ego is. He he abandoned Peter and his mother after after impregnating her at, with Peter, and because he decided that he had more important things to do, 
And what he decides is love is not actually what love really is. He's a very selfish, uh, and if you'll pardon the choice of word, egotistical person. <laughs> and when you when you get right down to it, the, the whole movie is about Peter recognizing that the idea of his father vastly was undermined by how terrible of a person his father actually is. And even though everyone around him starts to suspect that, you don't really get the full picture of how terrible ego is until the moments that that you start to understand what his ambitions are, like how far he is willing to go in making everything in his image. He's a monster, and Peter's quest is to is to realize that, you know, sometimes we come from monsters. Sometimes we, sometimes people who turn out to be good have to come to terms with the fact that their origins may not be pleasant. Yeah. And I think for me, when Ego was first introduced and took the team to the planet and everything, he at first seemed a lot more delusional than anything else. So I think they sort of do a great job of making you think things are going to go one way and possibly work out. And then, you know, we find out what his true intentions are. And while he didn't seem like pure evil at the start, he clearly just wants to destroy everyone and everything, basically, and wants Peter to help him do it. And based on what we've already learned about Peter from the first movie and the first part of the second movie, even though this is his father, in the back of our minds, I feel like everyone kind of knows that he's not going to let this happen. Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing about that is that Ego doesn't so much want to destroy everything as he wants everything to become a part of him. And in essence, I'm kind of just putting this thought together now, but uh, he kind of wants to become the father of everything when you get right down to that, to it. And he, he wants everything to be in his image. Right. And you can, uh, you can extrapolate from the, uh, the phallic tentacles that he, he uses to uh, <laughs> cause this to happen. Which, by the way, I am shocked that uh, that happened in a Marvel movie. When, when you marry the subtext with the, uh, with the tentacle imagery uh, of the film, like it is a very dark and very explicitly sexual film. So it uh anyway that's that's a little bit beside the point but just seeing ego ego is delusional that's that is part of his character right but that delusion is tempered by a force of will that means that any other perspective is closed off to him he he believes himself so much above any other life form that any other sort of dissenting opinion is not even worth considering. So, I mean, in essence, his his name is exceedingly appropriate. Yeah, and this was a character that I hadn't read about in any of the comics that I've been reading here and there. So I actually was pretty surprised by the fact that he was this person and well, I guess you wouldn't really call him a person since he's a god, at least according to him. 
And they definitely took the story and made it about so much more than just the team and just Ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because we, we've been talking about Ego a lot here, but uh, it, it's easy to forget, like, given how much the third act of the film is very Peter and Ego-centric, that this is still an ensemble film, and we, we get a lot of the other characters as well. Uh, you get a Gamora-Nebula subplot in where their primary conflict is dealing with the fact that they're both victims of child abuse, which, again, a very dark theme for, for a Marvel film that I'm impressed was allowed to go as far as it did. And then you also have Yondu and, and Rocket both dealing with their insecurities about having to posture around everyone that they know, which is, which is also a very interesting take on these characters that we, until now, have mostly been tough personas. So th- there's a lot going on in this film, that I really appreciate from a character standpoint. Yeah. And they were definitely able to take those and hit a lot of different emotions with those characters, because you see Gamora and Nebula sort of fighting for a good amount of the time. And then they still have this sisterly bond because they've both gone through similar things just because Thanos is their father. And with Yondu, he's an outsider with the Ravagers at the moment because he made a mistake and he got involved with, you know, children, basically. And they were like, you know, that's sort of one of our rules. Don't involve children, basically. And so you see him on the outside. And I think without that, we wouldn't have gotten the same sort of ending with Yondu that we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And What's really great about Yondu is that he ties in with the parentage theme of Ego and Peter in that Peter comes to realize that his adoptive father, who through through the entire first film, you, you kind of see this uh, love-hate relationship with Yondu that, that pretty much verges more on the side of hate. But then in volume two, you come to recognize more and more that Yondu was just a very tough parent. And so the adoptive father ended up being more of a father to Peter than the biological one. And when and just like how the Guardians are a surrogate family to one another, uh, the lesson is that uh, sometimes it, it's your surrogate family that is more important than the people who are just who just happen to be biologically connected to you. Yeah, and that is part of what allows Peter to sort of overcome all of these feelings that he's having because he's finally found out who his father is. And even when his father is explaining everything to him and he's, it's sort of not clicking as soon as you would like it to because he's, you know, well, he's part human anyway, but he's human enough to feel all these sorts of emotions that people feel when they find a parent and you know that could go for anyone in guardians it doesn't have to be just because he's human but it makes him relatable in a sense because not everyone would just immediately think bad of someone when they finally found them it's going to take him a little bit of time to sort of sort through all these feelings and everything and i think that's what they did a great job with too 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when when you've built up someone in your head as much as Peter built up Ego, like, he wanted him to be his David Hasselhoff, right? Right. <laughs> and when, when you build someone up that much, and then you meet them in person, and then at first glance, it seems that they live up to those expectations, it's really easy to fall into that. And I think that the, the gradual peeling away of what exactly is going on with Ego is really masterfully done. You, you're, you're pretty much limited by Peter's perspective and only get glimpses of sinister intent when the perspective shifts to other characters, usually Gamora. So it's, I thought it was a very well done reveal to gradually ease the, the audience into first trusting Ego and then maybe suspecting a bit. It's a bit off. Yeah, and I want to get your thoughts on what's going on between Gamora and Peter, because they've mentioned that there's this sort of unspoken thing, but, you know, they really work their way through it throughout this, too, as another sort of subplot. There seems to be a lot of things going on with the individual characters outside of this big major plot with Ego, and I think that's sort of what helps make this movie as good as it is, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, with, with Gamora and Peter, are you referring to their, uh, romantic, uh, will they, won't they? Right. Or, yeah. I have very mixed feelings about that. Because, on the one hand, it feels sort of natural that Gamora and Peter would, uh, be attracted to one another. And I think that's particularly true now that you see the abusive father connection that they both share. Right. But, on the other hand, there, there is a part of me that wishes that this film didn't feel obligated to include a romantic subplot and because it is an ensemble film elevating two characters to be the ro- the romantic leads when it's not really a necessary addition uh particularly because gamora falls into that slot just by the basis of her being the team girl and we still have to have heteronormative uh love leads in movies so uh, it's, it's tough, cause I, I like the scenes where they have their chemistry, and I kinda like how the film doesn't entirely commit right. to them having a romantic relationship, but at the same time, I almost wish they'd left it alone. Yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from, because I feel like the Avengers went through something similar when they, you know, put... Black Widow and Bruce Banner together and it was just like but why (laughs) sort of Mm -hmm. thing and while this feels a bit more natural it'll be interesting to see how much they sort of push that as a subplot with the following movie if they end up doing that Mm -hmm. I would imagine that because the third film is confirmed to be a James Gunn feature I would imagine that they would that that's going to remain something that happens and assuming that he's leaving at the end of this trilogy i'd imagine he wants to provide some level of closure so uh i would imagine that we're probably going to see an explicit declaration of of a relationship at some point probably towards the end of the third film but i also give james gunn enough credit to to realize that that's not going to be the point of the movie whereas in another film that uh, wasn't as expertly made, I think that the romantic tension would have 
overtaken every other plot element. But now I'm just in speculation. So, <laughs> Yeah, but that's something that will be interesting to see how he handles it, whether they ended in this full-blown relationship or not. And I think where they left things here was probably as good of a spot as any for this film in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and again, you, you don't want to run the risk of overstuffing the film. And, like, that's a very common criticism of this film, is that, like, you already had a large cast, and and the film added mo even more characters, and gave uh, characters that used to be background characters further prominence. And so, like, even with, like, even in this film, it did feel a little overstuffed. And I think that if you're going to continue expanding this guardians universe you need to you need to handle payoff like that very carefully because you don't want it to overtake all the other elements of your film that you're trying to juggle right and briefly here i want to shift the focus off of peter and gamora since i feel like we've talked sure. about them a lot more than the rest of the team you mentioned earlier rocket dealing with a lot of insecurities in this film and one of the other things he is struggling with, too, is sort of why Groot isn't growing back to his full-blown size. And mm -hmm. while baby Groot is extremely fun, that's something that I feel like they still need to address a bit more because we'd never really get an answer to that. So it's like, mm -hmm. okay, are we going to keep having baby Groot? Which I would totally be fine with, personally. I love baby Groot. Did you not see the uh, the post credit scene with Groot? Oh yes, Groot is a teenager in in the post credits, right? Yep. And uh, well, actually, uh, James Gunn uh, said in an interview after the movie came out that that isn't teen Groot, but he's more like preteen Groot. Okay. So he he's like the equivalent of like a twelve year old, apparently. Right. So they figured it out, but. I'm still pretty interested in how that happened. <laughs> and, you know, if we are going to see Groot from where they leave off in the post credit scene will also be interesting to me. Or is Groot just suddenly going to be back to his full size at the start of the next film? Well, the interesting thing is, is that it's probably pretty debatable whether or not baby Groot is, this, in fact, the same Groot. Because depending on how a Groot's life cycle works, because this, this is a sci-fi space thing, so anything's <laughs> possible, but depending on how that works, like, the Groot that we knew in Volume 1 may well have died in, in that collision, and the sprout that grew from the potted plant, that might be, in effect, Groot's son. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's something that's been sort of debated online for the past couple months now. I'm not sure that there is an actual answer. Right. And I'm not even sure that the answer matters, but it it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, definitely. And I did find Baby Groot highly entertaining in this film, though. I feel like, mm -hmm. you know, Peter had this serious situation going on. Rocket was sort of dealing with these possibly newfound emotions that he was having and baby mm -hmm. Groot was just like this sort of little bundle of comic relief in a movie that's already pretty funny on its own just from the writing and everything mm -hmm. yeah and i think that like 
I've kind of steered this conversation into like some really heady and heavy topics, but like I I do want to emphasize that I think that this these films are some of the funniest that we've seen come out in the past couple years. Like yeah. the writing is top notch and all the comic delivery is aces. The, these are characters that work primarily because they they bounce off of each other in really dynamic and often hilarious ways. So it's it's a film that uh, I don't want to sound come off as pretentious and be like I appreciate these films entirely because of the subtext. No, I I definitely I definitely am right there with you laughing at uh, these these uh, jackasses giving each other a hard time. Yeah, definitely. And with Drax, he sort of provides humor in a very different way because he takes everything so literally and he Mm -hmm. doesn't really seem to have too much fluctuation in his voice. Sometimes, you know, he has a pretty droney voice, I Mm -hmm. guess you could say. And He's very deadpan. Yes. And I think the way they wrote each of these characters fits really well and because they're all so different that's just one of the many things that adds to the fun they can have with these characters while tackling these serious topics and everything at the same time yep i completely agree awesome well is there anything we haven't hit specifically on volume two yet well i i do want to give mention to the soundtrack of these films yes because i can't think of another pair of films that have such a perfect licensed soundtrack. They they feel like uh, very specifically catered mixtapes. Like, I, I know both of us are probably a little too young for, like, when mixtapes were a thing, <laughs> but, like, you, you can tell that there was a lot of care put into deciding what songs appeared in the film, and th- there are scenes that are made by the the musical accompaniment choice i will i will never forget the pairing of yandu getting his uh i don't even know what you call it the the spear the flying spear back in volume 2 pairing that with come a little bit closer is genius like it it fits that scene so well and i adore it like it it's like watching all of the ravagers falling off of the girders and the the spear flying around as they're walking in slow motion and come a little bit closer is playing in the background it is visual and auditory genius i love it to death yeah and i actually did want to talk about the soundtracks too because as a music industry major i you know took classes and had an internship in publishing so i know a little bit about what goes into getting songs used by music supervisors and everything like that and for Mm -hmm. me sometimes I'll be watching movies and I'm like wow they paid a lot of money to have that song in it and Mm -hmm. these two movies are just like that to the maximum it's like my jaw is just on the ground with how much money they probably spent getting all of these insane songs for oh yeah the films and I think the fact that they are doing special things with it too you know they'll have it come out on vinyl which probably cost them another chunk of money to have that put into the contracts for licensing the music and everything but Mm -hmm. it's still something really cool that they are doing 
for the fans of these movies. And I think, you know, these two soundtracks, even though I'm not huge on movie soundtracks, like you won't find too many soundtrack records in my collection. But I think with these, because of the impact it really did have on both films, it's kind of like an exception for me. Because, I I mean, I don't have them on vinyl, sadly, and that'll probably have to wait until I have this thing called money. So, (laughs) (laughs) and I think, you know, they're just taking a lot more liberties with this property than they could with a lot of the other movies. Like, I don't know how well an Avengers soundtrack would sell on vinyl because I can't really tell you too many songs that were in the Avengers movie to begin with. Mm -hmm. And like... What what's really interesting about Guardians of the Galaxy is that music is an integral part of the plot itself. Right. Like in 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 the first film, uh, you had that literalized with the uh, the volume one tape that uh, that Peter carried around with him, and like the Ooh Child song is 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 a perfect representation of his relationship with his mother. And then in volume two, you you literally have characters talking about uh, brandy. Uh, by Looking Glass, uh, as the the literal representation of ego abandoning Peter's mother because he has more important things to do, his life, his love, and his lady are the sea. So it's it's just very impressive to me that even at the the scripting stages, they're picking these these musical choices out because they have very significant plot significance significant significance you know what i meant (laughs) yeah and it's just it's very impressive how well thought out the the musical cues are in these films uh and and you're right the fact that these would probably be cost prohibitive for any other studio to even want to attempt it's it's mind-boggling and but for the sake of the art of these films i'm so happy that they're able to afford it yeah and i think it helps too that you know marvel has Disney behind them and everything and I think that also makes mm-hmm. it a lot more tempting for these artists to or whoever represents them and owns the songs now to want to have them in the movies because for a lot of these songs with as old as they are they probably got a pretty sizable uptick in sales or streams after these two movies came out. Oh definitely because what's, what's nice is that the vast majority of the soundtracks uh, songs are uh, one hit wonders from, from the seventies. Right. So like, these are songs that like you maybe have heard before, like you've heard them around, but they're, they're not like by bands that, you know, by name, I wouldn't have been able to tell you who sang Brandy until this, until this soundtrack came out. It's looking glass. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's allowing a new generation to connect with, these songs that I'm assuming that uh, James Gunn knew from uh, his own childhood and are obviously very important to him. So it's a very impressive undertaking and it it makes these films stand out. Yeah, of course. Well, why don't we go ahead and move on to some final thoughts here? And I know you asked me to watch Slither 
before, <laughs> you know, going I and did. seeing the second movie. So why don't you tell everyone a little about that? Because it's another movie by James Gunn for anyone who doesn't know. But <laughs> you mentioned that there's sort of a little nod to that here. Yeah. So Slither is James Gunn's first movie. Uh, it came out in, I want to say 2006, roughly 10 years ago. And the the premise of the film is that an alien presence crashes down in small town Earth, and it it basically ends up taking over uh, this town through basically being a tentacle monster. And it discovers love, and it misinterprets what love is as just being a sexual attraction. And without getting too far into it, like you see, like Michael Rooker plays the man who became infected with the alien presence and he's also the one who plays Yondu so that's just a fun little connection but when you look at Ego's plan and you look at the design of like his his tentacle monster uh, his tentacles that he throws around and it, it's it's a very striking parallel particularly because at one point uh, Ego says the the phrase I will be everything which is a line that is pulled directly out of Slither. And it, it's one of those things where all that subtext I was talking about earlier with how dark the, the tentacle imagery got and how it, like overtly sexual uh, that was, it, it, it harkened back to visions of Slither. So it, it's, it's very impressive to me that Gunn was allowed to essentially remake at least part of his horror beginnings uh, with a bigger budget and a theoretically more family-friendly audience. It's uh, it's just something I find very amusing. Yeah, and I'm definitely glad I did go and watch that because I actually quite enjoyed it. And I'm not, you know, huge on watching these sort of weird horror type movies. It's not that I don't like them. It's just, well, like I mentioned earlier, I'm really bad at watching movies, but <laughs> that's a mm-hmm. different story. So, you know, and for anyone who does want to check that out, I'll go ahead and link to that. But the link you sent me, Lee, it was like five bucks on Amazon or something, and you get three other horror movies with it. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's pretty cheap to just find this and watch it. So for anyone who hasn't done that, definitely recommend doing that. But to bring it back to Guardians here for our final thoughts, what do you think they're going to do as a result of the end of this film? Do you have any ideas on who they're going to bring in for the third film? Because with Yondu gone and you know Peter's father issues I don't want to say completely resolved but you know he's met his father and that is sort of out of the way now what do you think they could potentially do based on the ending of this film Hmm. you know I haven't given a lot of thought to what they could do as far as like themes for the next film I I'm fairly confident that they're going to do something with Adam Warlock based on the uh one of the post-credit scenes that they had okay, with the, um, uh, the gold skinned people. I can't remember what they're called because they're sort of just in the movie and like, they're not the main threat and their, their conflict with the guardians isn't really resolved by the end of the second film. So I would imagine that dealing with that society is going to play at least some prominence in the third film. Beyond that, 
I'm I'm willing to bet that we're going to get uh, at least some glimpse of them in Infinity War because Thanos needs to somehow make his way towards Earth, and I imagine that we're going to get a little bit of setup for that in Thor Ragnarok. But I think that connecting the Guardians with Earth is going to happen in Infinity War in some shape. And then the events of that movie are likely going to shape what happens in Guardians Volume 3. Right. And the gold people are the sovereigns, I believe. The sovereign. Yep. Thank you. I, I completely blanked on what they're called. It's okay. It took me forever to figure out who the actress was who was playing the queen because I was like, she looks so familiar, but she's gold. So it's throwing me off. But I finally mm-hmm. figured out that she was in the night manager and that's what was bothering me so much. But gotcha. I, I think, you know, I like how they tied these two movies together enough to leave it sort of open to be tied in with the Infinity War and everything. You know, there weren't too many loose ends left at the end of Volume 2, and the galaxy is pretty big from what I hear, so I don't have any doubt that they'll be able to keep this going even longer than just the three movies that James Gunn is on if they want to, because they have so many different avenues they can take with it. It, it sounds like what the plan is based on an interview that Gunn did a couple weeks back. Uh, it sounds like the, the last hurrah for this group of guardians, the, the five to six folks that we think of as the guardians of the galaxy, like, Volume 3 is, in theory, going to be, like, their last hurrah as the Guardians. And so I think that they want to keep the Guardians brand going, but potentially have a a rotating cast of different celestial characters. Yeah, and I think that's something that can work to their advantage, too, because, like we've already said, there's a lot of different planets and characters that they can use for this, Mm -hmm. because while Marvel has this entire universe on the ground they also have this entire one in space too and i think that gives them a lot of different options because in the comics they have this series for the guardians that you know all of them are grounded on earth so you can kind of go both ways with the guardians and i think that opens them up to a lot of opportunities in the future Mm -hmm. And, and i imagine that guardians is going to have a much easier time transitioning into new ground when we get into like phase four right because we're going to we're, we're starting to hit that point where a lot of the marvel actors have been doing this for the better part of a decade and they uh, and the, for the most part i imagine they they want to move on and have availability to do other things as actors so uh but but guardians is is unique in that like it's not tied to any specific characters, at least on a permanent basis. So, like, we may be dropping Star-Lord, Rocket, and Groot, but, like, we may end up picking up Adam Warlock as as an anti-hero protagonist, or any number of other uh, celestial uh, characters in Marvel that I can't even think of, and that opens up the opportunity for new actors to step into this universe. Uh, and, you know give the people who've been uh, shouldering these franchises through the uh, 2010s a bit of a break. Yeah, exactly. Well, is there anything else you want to hit on before we wrap this up? 
Not in particular, other than to say that uh, I think that these are some of the best action blockbusters to come out in the past 10 years, and I cannot wait to see what Volume 3 delivers. Yeah, same. And I think these have also been some of the better of even the Marvel movies, even though I know some people might not be as attached to the Guardians as they are, you know, characters like Iron Man, Captain America, and just the Avengers in general. But for me, with how entertaining they made it, it made me really enjoy these characters a lot more. And I don't know if I would have even started diving into these comics without these movies. So I think they've sort of just really done themselves a favor with these movies, basically. Well, if box office returns mean anything, I think that a lot of people agree with you. I certainly do. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lee, for coming on. And thank you to Gamefly for sponsoring this. Be sure to go get your free trial for those of you who are video gamers. It's definitely worth it because you will get to enjoy a game for free. So what harm could it do? But to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.